from, uh, from time to time, I think it's advantageous to take a personal spiritual assessment of our lives, see where we're, see where we're at, where we've made progress, where we might be digressing. Uh, see if there's any areas of our walk that the Lord might want to draw some attention to. See if we're being the people that we need to be, if we're putting enough emphasis on what God has designed for us individually and certainly as a corporate body. And I've been doing that assessment these past few weeks and found something I didn't particularly care for. An area I'm still struggling in after over 50 years of being a believer. And in doing some recent research on it, apparently I'm not the only person in the world who struggles in this area. So something you probably ought to be able to answer in your opinion with your study, with your thoughts on the subject, what do you think is the main purpose of the church? You know, that group of people that call themselves believer and meet together on Sundays. Jesus left us to do his work. He left us to worship God, to do good works, to become better people and to proclaim his gospel. And I think it's plain from Scripture that each and every one of us and the church as a whole has been given a mandate, something of marching orders, I guess, in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, something we know as the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here we find our primary purpose, orders from the resurrected Jesus. And there's two things we should remember about it. First, these words are a command. That's why they call it the Great Commission and not the Great Suggestion, I guess. Jesus didn't say, look, guys, you know, if you're in the mood and it works in your busy schedule and and you have time as a personal favor to me, why don't you go tell people about me? It's not what he said at all, is it? It's a command, and he said, go and make disciples. I even went to our church website to kind of compare notes on the subject. And the website, there's a page that's titled Our Approach. And if you've never been on the church website, it's kind of blocked off in sections. And the one under Our Approach uh, lines out what we're founded on, what we believe is essential and mandatory in the biblical functioning of a church. And one of those pillars is that we are missional. And what it says under that subtitle is this. It says, the mission of the church is an extension of Jesus' mission before her. We believe the mission of the church consists in four parts, 
to proclaim the gospel, to show justice and mercy to our community, to honor God in our work, and to strive for Christ-likeness in our day-to-day living. And I don't think it's coincidental that the first part listed is to do what we have titled the Great Commission. And I might even suggest that to fail to do this actually could be considered sin on our part. He goes, sin? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe I should do more, but it's not sin if I don't share the gospel, is it? Well, I think if you consider James 4.17, so for the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin, it's called a sin of omission, which is not doing what we know we're supposed to do. And it cuts a pretty wide swath. But that being aside, why is it so hard for us to engage others about Jesus Christ? Over the years, I've heard a lot of excuses for not fulfilling our job in this area. You know, it's not my spiritual gift. Have you ever used that one? Uh, That's why we pay the pastor. It's his job. Or the dog ate my Bible. I, I can't. You know, a lot, of, a lot of excuses, but no good reasons. Paul tells young Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. It probably wasn't his spiritual gift. In fact, he may have been told to do this because he was neglectful in that area of his life. But whatever the reason, we are all expected to go and make disciples. And I have certainly over the years had some favorable outcomes, but I've never been really committed to the mission. Never really personally taken responsibility for my share of the workload in this area. Never modeled an evangelistic lifestyle. And never had a real desire to do that. And that is all on me. It's my bad. The fact is I've had opportunity after opportunity to fine-tune this portion of my spiritual life, and I've not taken advantage of them. In fact, in 2008, what, 14 14 years ago, I was asked to be a speaker at a small Christian conference at a local church, and the topic that was assigned to me, of course, was evangelism. And I had a three-hour block to fill at this conference. So being that evangelism was easily my weakest area in my spiritual life, I thought, man, I'm the wrong guy to do this. But maybe God's trying to get my attention. So I studied hard, and after weeks and weeks of preparation, uh, hours of putting a three-hour block of training together, the day came to present it, and the presentation went well, and there were... A lot of thank yous, and wow, that was great, given out, but I never got any better or more dedicated to this biblical mandate. Then again, in 2017, I did a two-message block on evangelism, and I noticed the same reaction on both parts. The audience said, great job. And I never did anything to commit myself any further. 
<clears throat> this past month, I went over those messages that I had done for, for those two uh, conferences to find out what was lacking, to see why it didn't even motivate me. And if it didn't motivate me, it didn't have a chance to motivate anybody else. I mean, I just wasted my time. But going over those messages this past few weeks, I had delivered something that was fairly unsound. I found that it was lacking something very important. The messages were filled with our call to evangelize. Uh, they were filled with graphs and charts showing how bad we're doing in this area. Even a lot of data about surveys and studies regarding demographics and social change that we have to navigate around when we do this, but they lacked substance. They lacked real-life, hands-on education and instruction that would encourage and motivate anyone to pick the ball up and run with it. So I began compiling practical information from different sources, a lot of different sources, uh, people like Ray Comfort or Frank Turek, if you're familiar with either of them, and probably dozens of other sources that I put, put together and started figuring out that maybe these people that have been effective in this area might have something to communicate. So that's where I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning trying to look at effective methods to do what it is we've been commanded to do. So what do we do? What methods do we use? Is there something that works better than other things? <clears throat> what's been tried and what's worked? Well, obviously, there's no one way to do this. I've seen a lot of methods employed over the years using the four spiritual laws. Anybody ever done those? It's pretty easy. It's, it's something that's been out since maybe the 60s. Uh, it's a little tract that's, that uh, lays out God's plan very concisely, and you just read through it with somebody, and then you pray at the end, and they accept Jesus. There's also the Roman road, a method used to go through a number of passages in the book of Romans, to clearly outline God's plan for our lives. And I think it starts out with Romans 1, 20 and 21, where the person is shown that they need to acknowledge God as the creator of everything and accept our own humble position in his creation. And then you go to Romans 3.23, for all who sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then on to Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, which naturally ends in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And on to Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then you finish up with Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's, it's a rather complete outline of the gospel message from a single book. Uh, it's planned, it's canned, and some people have used it quite successfully. I actually think most of us, however, use what I call the undercover evangelism method. And, and it's weird because we actually justify it with Scripture using 
1 Corinthians 9, 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. And we use this verse to rationalize our lack of action. And the truth is that we're not at all concerned about saving any, let alone some, because undercover evangelism is where we act almost just like the world, so we become weak to the weak, and you know, we, and but it's almost just like the world. We decided that we don't cuss, and we always tell people no when they invite us after work to go have a drink. And we quickly add, I just can't do those kind of things. And we think to ourselves, I'm just going to wait until someone asks me why I'm so different. And then we wonder why nobody's asked us in the last 40 years why we're so different. <clears throat> There's another method that's popular today that they've coined the term lifestyle evangelism. And if you look it up on the internet, you'll find hundreds of websites and a lot of them sell things like T-shirts and programs and training and stuff like that to help you break the ice with people. And the idea of acting like a Christian uh, isn't anything new. I think Scripture is full of us supposed to act like a Christian. But it can encourage others to uh, become at least acceptive of a Christian lifestyle. Uh, and let's face it, it's what God wants us to do. One website gave the definition of lifestyle evangelism as a nonverbal means of spreading God's word. And the concept is possibly a good one. We're supposed to live that kind of life. The problem with utilizing strictly a lifestyle evangelism form is that it's often an excuse not to actually use the message of the gospel uh, with non-Christians. We just get around them, and it's sort of like osmosis. They kind of catch Christianity from us. And just hanging around wonderful people like me is not going to do it. Okay. Uh, if we live our lives like good people and don't tell others about Jesus Christ, then we get the glory for being really nice people, and God's left out of the whole thing. No matter what method we use, the first thing we have to do is develop a passion for evangelism, for sharing the gospel. Is that possible, to develop a passion for it? Actually, if you think about it, what's the greatest possession that you have? Jesus Christ. He's here. He's in me. He gives me grace moment by moment. Should we be able to develop a passion for somebody else having that? Well, it seems like we should be able to. Uh, the only way this is really going to be effective is if we buy into the mission, the mission that, that God gave us, that Jesus gave us just before he ascended into heaven. We need to be committed to God's plan. And the second thing we have to do is to commit ourselves to a biblical approach, approach to evangelism. How do we normally approach somebody when we are going to share Jesus Christ? 
well, we see someone and they're distraught and crying and you go visit a friend and he's distressed and depressed and you listen to their story and you show an appropriate degree of compassion and empathy and then you start to talk to them about Jesus, this Jesus that you have in your heart. <clears throat> and he's promised us joy and peace and a wonderful life. Just give your heart to him and everything's going to be better. Is that a biblical approach? The fact is that we have totally changed our approach to the gospel message. We've absolutely entirely neglected a biblical approach to sharing Jesus Christ. And we've turned to a more modern approach that's nice and fluffy and it feels good and it doesn't hurt anybody's feelings and it doesn't work. Not for very long, anyway. If we begin with a biblical approach instead of a modern evangelistical approach, all of a sudden, the pieces seem to fall into place. And a light bulb goes off, and we get it. So let's start by convincing ourselves with Scripture on how to approach evangelism. The Bible says in Psalm 19, or, or yeah, 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring or converting the soul. So what is it that the Bible says converts the soul? The law of the Lord. To illustrate this function of the law, of God's law, let's look for just a second at civil law. Imagine if I said to you, David, I've got some good news someone has just paid the $25,000 speeding fine that you owed, and they paid it on your behalf. You probably react by saying something like, what are you talking about? That's not good news. It doesn't make any sense. I don't have a $25,000 speeding fine. So my good news wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't be good news at all. It would seem like foolishness to you. But more than that, it would be offensive to you because... I'm insinuating that you broke the law when you didn't, you didn't think you did. But what if I put it this way? I approach you and I say, on the way to that meeting last week, the law clocked you going 55 miles an hour through an area that was set aside for a blind children's convention. There were 10 clear warning signs that you were supposed to be going 15 miles an hour but you went straight through the whole thing at 55 miles an hour. What you did was extremely dangerous. There's a $25,000 fine for that illegal thing you did. And the law was about to take its course when someone you don't even know stepped in and paid the fine for you. You are very, very fortunate. Kind of a, a story without a lot of substance, but I think you can see precisely from that story that you've done something wrong, and that's the first thing you approach, is you've done something wrong. And it actually makes good news that somebody paid the fine for you. <clears throat> because the first approach sounds like foolishness, and it's offensive. But once you understand that you've broken the law, then the good news is going to become actually good news. 
So it's just a concept for us to get our minds around the fact that we need to start with the law. So in the same way, if I approach an impenitent sinner and say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, it's going to be foolishness to him. Not to mention extremely offensive. It'll be foolishness because it won't make sense. The Bible says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it will be offensive because I'm insinuating he's a sinner when he doesn't think he is. And as far as he's concerned, there's a lot of people that are a lot worse than him, so leave me alone. But if I take the time to follow the way Jesus approached other people, sinners, it may make more sense. If I take time to open up the divine law just by using the Ten Commandments and show the sinner precisely what he's done wrong, that he's offended God by violating his law, and he becomes convinced that he sinned against God, then the good news of the fine being paid for him truly is good news, and it's not offensive at all. So with those few thoughts in mind, let's look at some of the functions of God's law for humanity. And I'm going to run very quickly through a number of verses here so that we can understand the purpose of starting all evangelism with the law. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So one function of God's law is to stop the mouth. It stops people from saying, I'm, you know, there's plenty of people worse than me. I'm not a bad person, really. No, because the law steps in and stops the mouth of justification and leaves the whole world, not just the Jews, but the whole world guilty before God. Same passage goes on to say in 3.20, because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 7.7, both of these are kind of united here. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So Paul says, I didn't know what sin was until the law told me. Because that's where we need to start, is with the law. Galatians says, therefore the law has become our guardian so as to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. God's law acts as a guardian. It acts as a schoolmaster that we might be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. The law doesn't help us. It just leaves us helpless. It doesn't justify us. It just leaves us guilty before the judgment of a holy God. And that's the tragedy of modern evangelism. Because somewhere around the turn of the last century, when it forsook the law in its capacity to convert the soul, to drive sinners to Jesus Christ, Modern evangelism had to find another reason for sinners to respond to the gospel. And the issue that modern evangelism chose to attract sinners 
was the issue of life enhancement. The gospel degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. And to illustrate the unscriptural nature of this very popular teaching, pay close attention to the following anecdote, because the essence of what I'm saying pivots on this particular illustration, okay? There's two men seated in a plane. The first one, the flight attendant comes up and gives this man a parachute and says to him, if you put this on, it will improve your flight. It will make your flying experience a lot more pleasurable. He's a little skeptical at first, but he says, well, if that's what they think, then I certainly want to improve my flight. So he puts it on, and he notices it's a little heavy. It kind of drags his shoulders down, and he can't sit up straight, and it really is kind of irritating. Uh, but he consoles himself with the fact that the flight attendant said it was going to improve his flight, so he tries it for a while. And he notices after a little bit that some of the other passengers are making fun of him. And they're laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute in a plane. And he begins to feel a little bit humiliated, and they begin to point and laugh at him, and he can't stand it any longer, and he unstraps the parachute, throws it on the floor, and you can be assured that as far as he's concerned, he's not putting that parachute on again. He was told an outright lie. His flying experience was not enhanced positively by wearing the parachute. But the second man on the plane is also given a parachute by another flight attendant, and he's told to put it on because at any moment the tail of the plane's going to fall off and you're going to need it. We're at 25,000 feet, and you're going to fall to the ground. So he gratefully puts on the parachute. He doesn't notice the weight of it upon his shoulders. He doesn't notice that he can't sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if the tail fell off and he didn't have a parachute. So take a look at the motive and the result of each passenger's experience. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was solely to improve his flight, his experience. The result of his experience was he was humiliated by other passengers, he was disillusioned and somewhat embittered to those who told him to put the parachute on. As far as he's concerned, it'll be a long time before he ever tries on another parachute. But the second man, he put the parachute on solely to escape the fall to his death that would surely be coming. And because of this knowledge, what would happen to him without it, he has a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he's saved from sure death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers, and his attitude towards those who give, gave him the parachute is sincere, heartfelt gratitude. Now consider what the modern gospel says. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. So the sinner responds in a somewhat 
experimental fashion. He puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true. And what does he get? Exactly what Scripture promises. Temptation, tribulation, and persecution. The other passengers mock him. So what does he do? Takes off the Lord Jesus Christ. He's disillusioned, somewhat embittered, and rightly so, because he was promised peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and lasting happiness, and all he got were trials and humiliation. His bitterness is directed towards those who gave him this good news. Instead of preaching that Jesus Christ is going to improve his flight, we should be warning the passengers they're going to have to jump out of the plane. Hebrews 9.27. Is that where we're at? No. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is destined for people to die once, and after this comes judgment, when a sinner understands the horrific consequences of breaking God's law, then his natural reaction is going to be to flee to the Savior, to escape the wrath that is to come. And if we're true to the faithful, true and faithful witnesses, that's what we're going to be preaching, the wrath to come. You see, the issue isn't one of happiness, but one of righteousness. It doesn't matter how happy that sinner is, how much he's enjoying what Hebrews calls the pleasures of sin for a season. That's not what this is about. Without righteousness of Christ, he's going to perish when he dies. Peace and joy are legitimate fruits of salvation, but it's not legitimate to use those fruits as a drawing card for salvation. Now, if you and I have put on the Lord Jesus Christ for the right motive, to flee from the wrath to come, when tribulation strikes, when the the flight gets bumpy, we won't get angry at God, we won't lose our peace and joy. Why should we? We didn't come to Jesus to give us peace and joy. We came because we didn't want to face the death that's to come. But sadly, we have literally multitudes of those who profess Christ who lose their joy and their peace when the flight gets bumpy. And the reason is that they're the product of a man-centered gospel. They came lacking repentance, without which you cannot be saved. So if you've ever wondered why you suffer from the disease called evangelical frustration, this is the reason. You've wanted sinners to respond to the gospel, but we've been preaching a man-centered gospel. And it goes something like this. You'll never find true peace without Jesus Christ. You have this God-shaped hole in your heart that only God can fill. You ever used that one? And what happens is you find that after a very short time, this individual has given up his commitment to Jesus Christ, given up the message that you've given him, he's backslidden, and he's actually in a worse place than he was before you talked to him. He's been inoculated. And it's because the message you gave him is, why not give this Christian thing a go? might work. 
you know, see if what these Christians say is true, that you're going to have peace and joy and love and fulfillment and lasting happiness. That's really what you've told them. They weren't fleeing from the wrath to come because we hadn't told them there is wrath to come. There was this glaring omission from our gospel message. The people we spoke to weren't broken in contrition. They weren't penitent because they didn't know that they had to be. How can a man repent if he doesn't know what sin is? Any so-called repentance on the man's part would merely be what you could call horizontal repentance. He's coming because he lied to men. He stole from men. You, know, you think about it, you look at the scriptures. <clears throat> when David sinned with Bathsheba, he broke like all ten of the commandments. He didn't say, I have sinned against man. No, he said, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When Joseph was tempted sexually, he said, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Even the prodigal son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Scripture is pretty plain about this. 2 Corinthians 7 10 says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. That's essential. And when a man doesn't understand that his sin is primarily vertical, not horizontal, he'll merely come and exercise a superficial, experimental, horizontal repentance and fall away as soon as tribulation comes. See, if you try to save a man from drowning and he doesn't think he's drowning, he's just going to be upset with you. See a guy out on the lake and you go, well, I think he's drowning. And you go out there and you pull him off the lake and he didn't think he was drowning, he's just going to be mad at you. He was having fun out there swimming. I think the next illustration will help us to fully understand this concept of starting with the law. Let's say you came to me and you said, uh, hey, Tom, this right here in this little bottle, it's a cure for, for winky bottom disease. And I sold my house to raise the money to buy this cure. I'm, I'm giving it to you as a free gift. And I'd probably say, well, something like what? A cure to what? Winky bottom disease? What's that? I've never heard of it. You sold your house to raise the money for this cure, and now you're giving it to me for free? Uh, thanks. Thanks. Bye. And you'd walk away saying to yourself, that guy's a nutcase. If you sold your house to raise the money to get a cure for a disease that I've never heard of and are giving it to me as a free gift, I think you're at least a half a bubble off plum. But instead, imagine this. You came to me and said, Tom, you got the winky bottom disease. And I can see, <laughs> I just made that up, I'm not sure why. I, 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 <laughs> you got the winky bottom disease, and I can clearly see 10 symptoms all over your body. 
that you've got it. And you're going to die in two weeks. And I became convinced that I had the disease because you know, you know it when you see it. And, and the symptoms were so evident. And I said, oh, no, what can I do? And you go, don't worry. Here's the cure for winky bottom disease. I'm going to have to say that several times, aren't I? <laughs> Here's the cure. This is the cure for winky bottom disease. And I sold my house to raise the money to get this cure, and I'm giving it to you as a free gift. And I'm going to be so grateful. I'm going to appreciate the sacrifice you've made. I'm going to appropriate it. I'm going to use it. Why? Because I have the disease and I can really appreciate the cure. You've convinced me. And sadly, what's happened in the United States, and in fact, the entire Western world, is that we've preached the cure without first convincing of the disease. We've preached the gospel of grace without first convincing men of the law. And consequently, almost everyone you try to witness to has been born again six or seven times. When you say, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, their response is, uh, I, I, I did that when, when I was seven, and, and 11, and 17, and 23, and 28, and 32. You know the guy's not a Christian. But he thinks he's saved because he's been born again. What's happening? He's never been convinced of the disease that he might appreciate the cure. Without the law, without repentance, without a recognition of the price that's been paid, salvation is a pretty meaningless word. Biblical evangelism is always, without exception, law to the proud and grace to the humble. Scripture tells us that. With the law, Jesus breaks our hard hearts. And with the gospel, he heals that broken heart. Talking to to people using these kind of scenarios, with the parachute, the cure for a disease, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you you can see how it's laid out, how God's law is laid out. What else can we use? Well... Some valuable tips for sharing the gospel to people. First off, a bad approach is to start with, Jesus loves you. It's a bad approach. Or how about, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. You come to somebody cold like that, what are they going to do? Probably turn off immediately. Because if I want to waken somebody from a deep sleep, I don't come and shine a big flashlight right in their eyes. The glare is going to kill them. It will offend them. We need a different approach. How about turning on a very dim light, very gentle, first the natural and then the spiritual? Why? Because 1 Corinthians 2.1 tells us, but a natural man, but a natural person 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I think an example found in Scripture is in, in John 4. We can see Jesus' example with the woman at the well. He started in the natural realm, moved to the spiritual, brought conviction using the seventh commandment, and then revealed himself as Messiah. There's a good pattern there. So when you meet someone, you might start out by talking about the weather or sports or knitting or something like that. Let them feel comfortable. Get to know them, maybe a joke or two. And then deliberately swing from the natural to the spiritual in your conversation. <clears throat> There's a lot of good ways to do this. And some of the, some of the easier ones, one example is, is uh, tracts, gospel tracts. Uh, I've got an example here, just using something like this. In fact, I think I've got it on a, yeah. And you just ask him, which one's bigger? And he says, well, the blue one. Well, you can turn around and the other one's bigger now. And you can tell them they're the same thing, but it's an optical illusion. And they go, wow, that's really cool. How does that work? How does it do that? And you go, you can have that. And, you know, on the back, there's a gospel message, how to, how to come to Jesus Christ. Wow, thanks, man. Pretty simple. Or here's an, another one you can use. Just a single thing, you can give them a million bucks. Here's the million dollar question. You know, and, uh, and on the back there's a salvation message. Those are easy things to turn a conversation from just, hey, how you doing, to a spiritual conversation. <coughs> Maybe to, to transition from the natural to the spiritual realm? Just asking a simple question. <clears throat> Something like, I'm curious, you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Uh, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? That's a pretty easy one. That might start a conversation. Something like this. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I think I've kept the Ten Commandments. Really? Well, let's, let's take a look. You ever told a lie? Uh, <clears throat> well, yeah, I guess I've, I've told a lie. What does that make you? I don't know, maybe a sinner? <clears throat> no, specifically, what does it make you? Uh, well, I'm not a liar, man. Well, how many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? You just said you've lied. Isn't it true? One, one lie makes you a liar? Yeah, I guess you're right. He just go through a conversation, something along those lines. <coughs> you ever stolen anything? Uh, well, no. You just admitted you're a liar, and now you're saying you've never stole even the smallest thing? Well, yeah, I guess I have. Uh, what does that make you? Well, I guess a thief. You might say, well, Jesus said, you know, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Ever done that? Well, yeah, plenty of times then from your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart, and you have to face God on Judgment Day. And we've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments. 
there's another seven that we could talk about. You know, things like uh, the Bible says, if you hate someone, you, you're a murderer. Now, the wonderful thing about God's law is that God has taken the time to write it upon your heart. We know inherently that these things are wrong. So if God judges you by the standard, by this standard on judgment day, you're going to be innocent or guilty. And he says guilty, I guess. And here's where you can ask, well, where do you think you're going to go when you die, heaven or hell? And he might say heaven. Because he's heard the gospel message, the fluffy one, that says God loves you and he thinks God is good and that he'll overlook his sins. But the judge says you're guilty. All the evidence is here. You, have you got anything to say before I pass judgment on you? And you say, yes, judge, I'd like to say that I believe you're a really good man and you'll overlook my crimes. The judge is probably going to say, you're right about me. For one thing, I am a good man. And because of my goodness, I'm going to see that justice is done. Because of my goodness, I'm going to see that you are punished. And the very thing that the sinner hopes is going to save him on the day of judgment, the goodness of God is the very thing that is going to condemn him. Because God is good, and he must, by nature, punish sin wherever it's found. So, with what you've told him, he's now able to understand. He's now able to realize that he has sinned against heaven, not against man. He's violated God's law. He can see that he's weighed in the balance of eternal justice and he's found wanting. And therefore, he understands the need for a sacrifice that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We broke the law. He paid the fine. It's as simple as that. I know I've simplified this a great deal. The fact that we're at war with Satan. The fact is we need to start fighting it with the gospel message instead of with the feather duster of modern evangelism. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. There are ten great cannons that you can use for the destruction of Satan's fortresses and to bring a sinner to a real realization that he needs Jesus Christ as a savior. The law works. It converts souls. It's its purpose. It makes a person a new creature in Christ. The old thing has passed away. Behold, all things are new. So now your job is to get committed to the mission, and then go out and find yourself a sinner and experiment on him. Buy into the mission of evangelism. It's a command.